Uh, and I'm going to say good evening one more time uh, and welcome to each of you for coming here. It's, it's just wonderful to see this uh, capacity crowd here tonight. So we really appreciate you coming out and being supportive of uh, MLK activities. I'm Marcus Martin. Um, I'm Vice President and Chief Officer for Diversity and Equity at UVA. And I'm also uh, Professor of Emergency Medicine and the past chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UVA. And it's really great to be here at the African American Heritage Center. Uh, this is an absolutely wonderful venue. So first I want to thank um, Andrea Douglas uh, and her staff for accommodating us here tonight and continuously accommodating us here. So Andrea, thank you very much. And I um, also want to thank um, Cindy Frederick uh, and Danny Hauser, Elizabeth Muse, and Cecilia Magargi, Dana Mays, uh, and Althea Brooks, as well as Jane Petro, all from uh, UVA Lifetime Learning Alumni and Parent Engagement. Uh, for their work with us. They collaborated with the Office for Diversity and Equity and the President's Commission on Slavery in the University to co-sponsor this program tonight. So I really thank all those individuals. And uh, Megan Faulkner and Kristen Morgan from the Office for Diversity and Equity in the back and all of the ODE staff. And I also want to thank um, all of the folks on the 2015 Community MLK Planning Committee, that, consisting of about 50 individuals from the community and the university uh, for bringing us over 25 events over the past two weeks. These events will be ending um, this Friday. Um, but our, uh, first of all, let me thank all those folks again with an applause and please, please help me. <laughs> and we do have a couple more seats up front if someone wants to come up and sit. So the theme for our program, MLK Community Program this year is Giving Voice, and it's in recognition of the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, and the 50th anniversaries of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, giving voice to those for too long uh, who were silenced and ignored. So we have a great panel tonight. Our panelists tonight include the President's Commission on Slavery and University Commission members, uh, Kurt Von Dyck, Petrina Jackson, Mara McGinnis, and Kelly Dietz. Uh, Kurt Von Dyck, who's co-chair of the commission, uh, had a family emergency and cannot be with us tonight. I want to thank our panelists for being here, and I want to thank everyone here in the audience tonight for your participation and for your support of the MLK Community Celebration. First, uh, I want to give a little background information uh, on the President's Commission on Slavery and the University. It was during uh, an April 2013 UVA President's Cabinet meeting that a proposal was considered to form a commission on slavery to build on the efforts of many, and these included various organizations like the UCARE organization, uh, the Memorial for Enslaved Labor Student Group at University of Virginia, there's a group called the UVA Idea Fund, trustees, my office, the Office for Diversity and Equity, the Office of African American Affairs, the Office of the University Architect, the University Library, Carter G. Woodson Institute, University Guide Service, uh, there's a gravesite commemoration committee, and various individuals and students and community members who all uh, had a voice, and they said, you know, we need to do something in recognition of the slave laborers' contributions to the University of Virginia. So the President's Commission on Slavery and the University was officially established by President Teresa Sullivan in September 2013. 
And um, this is a slide of the commission members. I won't read all those names, but there were 26 people appointed uh, to the commission, consisting of students, staff, faculty, alumni, and community members. As I mentioned, Kurt Von Dyck and I co-chair the commission, and Megan Faulkner and Kelly Dietz are staff members for the commission. We were given the charge to provide advice and recommendations to the president on the commemoration of the University of Virginia's historical relationship with slavery and enslaved people. Exploring this relationship, we acknowledge the university's indebtedness to the institution of slavery. The enslaved played vital roles in the university's history. They cleared the fields, they moved the dirt which shaped the grounds, they made the brick and laid the brick. They chopped wood and washed laundry. They cared for white children and cooked meals for faculty and students. And they cared for the sick and wounded during wartime. The contributions by the enslaved in building this university and others like it should no longer be dismissed, but respectfully recognized and appropriately commemorated. The commission members were asked to serve on various working groups focusing on such areas as architecture, collaboration with external partners, daily life exploring the complex web of interactions between students, faculty, slaves, free African Americans, and local white residents. There was a memorialization subgroup, a gravesite commemoration group. The commission vision is to sustain community dialogue regarding slavery and race relations at the University of Virginia to discuss mutual interests with Mon uh, Monticello and Montpelier, and to research and document the history of the enslaved at UVA systematically. Weave the history of slavery and the lives of the enslaved into public university historical interpretations such as tours of the grounds, uh, websites, and other media. Some specific initiatives to consider, uh, we've been considering convert some known slave space into interpretive educational centers, and you hear a little bit more about this later, integrate the history of slavery at the university into interactive media, uh, very specifically in the Rotunda Visitor Center when it reopens in two years from now, create one or more physical memorials to the enslaved, and name one or more buildings after slaves at the university, create scholarships and professorships, and produce scholarly reports and papers and generate long-term concrete initiatives that will institutionalize these short-term projects that will promote diversity and inclusion beyond the life of the commission. Give you a little bit more background information. On April 13, 2007, the 264th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's birth, the UVA Board of Visitors passed a resolution commending the Virginia General Assembly's 2007 resolution on slavery. That resolution acknowledged with profound regret the involuntary servitude of Africans and called for reconciliation among all Virginians. So subsequently in 2007, a small slate memorial was placed in the passageway under the south terrace of the rotunda. And many of you have probably walked over this and never realized it. So it's on the ground floor, and it states, in honor of the several hundred women and men, both free and enslaved, whose labor between 1817 and 1826 helped to realize Thomas, Thomas Jefferson's design for the University of Virginia. 
So that's been there since 2007. Uh, one of the reasons the Memorial for Enslaved Labor Student Group promoted uh, further exploration and investigation and the need for a uh, more visible monument was because this one is not very visible. Other existing memorials at UVA include the Canada Community, South Lawn, a community of free African Americans in the site of the Catherine Foster Homestead and the adjacent African American burial grounds completed in 2010. Uh, the Henry Martin plaque installed in 2012 honors bell ringer and custodian Henry Martin, who was born into slavery at Monticello in 1826 and worked at UVA in slavery and freedom for some 53 years. So realizing the need for full-time research, we created a postdoctoral research associate position and filled it just before the symposium on slavery was held at the University of Virginia last fall. We established a local advisory board consisting of about 20 diverse individuals from the Charlottesville community. Uh, Rosa Atkins, Mary Jo Bateman, Caruso Brown, Lloyd Cosby, Alvin Edwards, Annie Evans, Doreen Feldman, Odari Hamilton, Phoebe Haup, Zai Hill, Gertrude Ivory, Dorinda Johnson, Maurice Jones, Lynn Rainville, Preston Reynolds, Kristen Zakos, Jesse Turner, Rick Turner, Hilda Warden, and Karen Waters-Wicks. Uh, a number of these individuals were very instrumental in helping us commemorate the African-American Cemetery at UVA, which I'll speak about in just a minute. So we held a, a slavery symposium in October 2014 uh, with the generous support of John and Barbara Now. John Now is one of our Board of Visitors members, and the John and Amy Griffin Foundation, and John Griffin is a Board of Visitors member at UVA also. The symposium brought together faculty, students, administrators, staff, and community members to discuss universities confronting the legacy of slavery. Over 350 people attended, and they represented 15 institutions of higher learning across the nation. Members of our local advisory board attended as well as other members of the Charlottesville community. We established a national advisory board consisting of about a dozen national experts on slavery and race relations. I won't read all the names. You can see those of well-renowned people, experts in their area. Uh, last year, we had Craig Wilder here from MIT who came and uh, spoke about his book. He's done a lot of research on slavery at the uh, institutions of higher learning. Several of these individuals gave presentations during the symposium back in October. The symposium opening reception was held right here at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center back in October. Isabella Gibbons was enslaved at UVA, but when emancipated, she became the first teacher of color at the Jefferson School, originally called Freedman School, the school. Her husband, William Gibbons, also enslaved at UVA, after emancipation became a minister at the First Baptist Church in Charlottesville, not too far from the Jefferson School, just a block over. So during that symposium in October, a memorial service was held at First Baptist Church where President Sullivan and State Delegate Dolores McQuinn spoke. That night we held a commemoration ceremony at the UVA African American Cemetery. During an archaeological survey in 2012, as the university was considering expanding the cemetery, removal of topsoil revealed the reddish-orange outlines of 67 previously unidentified interments. 
This gravesite had been dismissed, and the people buried here were forgotten. The grave shafts were laid out in distinct rows, as you see, with small clusters possibly representing family units. About 40% of the interments appear to have been children. Only eight of the grave shafts were marked with a headstone, a footstone, and none of these stones had any legible writing on it that would indicate who these individuals are. No graves were disturbed. No one was disinterred during the archaeological survey. Through a commemoration committee, in which I served and others, uh, we decided that we needed to restore the cemetery. It had been abandoned. Uh, debris was used as a parking lot for football games. It had been used as like a plant nursery, a carbonaceous material. It just was plain forgotten. So now, in restoration, we um, place sod on the top, and we now have um, a three-split rail fence for the most part around some places, two, two rails, um, and uh, signage. And what you see, that <clears throat> whole panel uh, gives information about the cemetery, and there's a list of names. We don't know those people are buried there, but we know they were slaves at the University of Virginia, and they died. So we suspect that some of the individuals whose names, most of them first names, are buried in the cemetery. So if you have an opportunity to go there, uh, it's, a, it's part of the university cemetery. It's adjacent to the White Cemetery. Um, it's a wonderful place to go and to contemplate. A poem about the cemetery was commissioned and written by a renowned poet, Brenda Marie Osby, and we read that poem that night. Dr. Deborah McDowell read the poem. That night, the ceremony uh, took place at the cemetery. The pathway into the cemetery was illuminated, and this is the pathway into the African-American cemetery. Um, there was a community choir that members of our local advisory board uh, put together, led by Reverend Almeta Miller from Richmond. And uh, this was beautiful. They were singing, Walk Together Children and keep your lights trimmed and burning. So just a, just a beautiful ceremony. Each individual, the ceremony, held a mason jar with the candle light. And there's some individuals are here tonight who took part in that ceremony. Um, each of the 67 grave shafts were marked by shepherd hooks holding mason jars with candle light. And a libation ceremony was conducted. It was a very moving experience. Now, we commissioned the film Unearthed and Understood, Slavery and the University of Virginia, directed by Eduardo Montez Bradley, the Heritage Film Project. Again, I want to thank uh, Eduardo Montez Bradley for a fantastic job and all those who took part in this film. Thank you again. <laughs> At this time, we're going to ask uh, our panel to come to the stage. I'm going to ask um, each of the panelists uh, just to give a brief introduction. And Petrina, we'll start with you. Good evening. I'm Petrina Jackson, and I'm the head of instruction and outreach at the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library. And in my role, I coordinate the instruction program, as well as continue to help to build that program. So when professors or groups contact me and they want to see items from the Special Collections Library, 
I basically make sure that that class happens so that their objectives are met with what they want their students to learn from that class. Good evening. It's exciting to see so many people here. I'm Marty McInnes. I'm in the provost's office and also a professor of art history and American studies. My research is focused on issues related to race and slavery. And at the University of Virginia, I teach a lot of classes that get students working uh, with Petrina and the library and primary collections. Uh, those two principal classes are Arts and Cultures of the Slave South and Discovering Mr. Jefferson's Academical Village. And I had them in there this semester working specifically on university archives um, around this topic. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I'm Kelly Dietz. I'm the research associate for the commission. And I'm going to tell you all about what I'm doing in a second. OK, great. I actually have uh, three questions that were written in advance for the three panelists. And then we will leave an opportunity for uh, members of the audience to raise questions that you may have. So I'm going to, and again, um, uh, Kurt Von Dyck, who is the co-chair, some of you may have come in after I mentioned, uh, was to be with us on the panel, but he had a family emergency and uh, couldn't be here. So the first question goes to Maury. Um, it's a two-part question. Uh, to date, what has the commission learned about the history of slavery and the enslaved at UVA? And how do we know what we now know? The other part is, what can we learn about slavery and the lives of the enslaved at the university from studying the landscape and architecture? Great. So I'm going to try to do this in brief. And our comments here at the front this evening are intended to hope generate, give you a little base background and then hopefully generate some questions at the end. So we'll all be relatively brief in what we're going to say. Um, first to talk about how we know what we know. And how we know what we know is really a, an introductory dive into the archival resources at the University Library. The University of Virginia has extraordinary official archives, and they total hundreds and hundreds of linear feet. It's really an overwhelming amount of data. And a number of people over the last 10 years have begun to do research in these archives and begun to uncover the story of slavery at the University of Virginia. But in many ways, we've really only touched the tip of the iceberg. Um, but some of those important people and publications, or at least projects in the past 10 years, have included work by Gail Shulman and Catherine Neal, both of whom have published um, or written papers on the history of slavery. Um, Frank Grizzard and his work on the construction of the university. Um, the extraordinary work that Ben Ford has done through his archaeological research around grounds. Um, there's a great article summarizing a lot of what we know that's widely available to you if you want to read more on the Virginia Encyclopedia website, um, which is a, an internet encyclopedia focused on Virginia history sponsored by the Virginia Foundation for Humanities. And if you Google within it um, slavery in the university, you'll find a great article there by Brendan Wolfe that tells you a lot of the basics of what we know. There have been classes taught by Frank Dukes and Phyllis Leffler, um, by myself and Kurt Van Dack and others at the university that have been focusing on this topic. And so the students are also participating in that work. And then as a sort of supplement to the president's commission, 
Um, Kurt Van Dack and I are the co-PIs of a digital humanities project to get all of the university's archives digitized, transcribed, and marked up with XML coding so that they will be accessible to everybody. And this is in many ways really what is going to have to be done for us to really be able to uncover the full history of the university um, and slavery because the reality is that there's no one place you can go to get this story. It exists in a thousand different places and usually in only asides and comments. Um, so the first task is to get the university archives in there, but we're also supplementing that with the kind of material that comes from faculty letters student diaries and student letters, because you get different perspectives depending on what the documentary source is telling you. Um, and so that's a project of many years. Um, we are thrilled to have Kelly here, who will be jump-starting us on all of that. Um, but we're making good progress. And that website, with what we have to date, which is you know, admittedly just a portion, is available and online. Um, and um, if you're interested in the website address, I can give that to you later tonight. Um, so what do we know? And this will be a very brief of what we know. Enslaved people were vital to the construction and the operating of the University of Virginia from the very first moment when Thomas Jefferson began to clear one of James Monroe's early cornfields. That work was done by people enslaved at Monticello. Throughout the construction process, the University of Virginia, which was one of the largest building sites in America at the time, was a building site occupied by free and enslaved African-American labor and free white labor. And so enslaved people played a vital role there. But once the university opened its doors, it could not have operated without enslaved laborers. And many times there were probably as many enslaved people in the academical village as there were free people. So the enslaved people were owned by different entities, primarily though, the faculty themselves um, and the people we refer to as hotel keepers. Um, the three larger buildings on the outer ranges of the lawns were operated as what they would have referred to as a boarding house, although no one actually lived there. They lived in the lawn and range rooms. But the people who ran the hotels were employed by the university to feed the students and to provide for their daily needs. And they were required by the University of Virginia to keep enslaved people to provide those services. And so they were bringing water to the students' rooms and lighting their fires and lighting the fires in the classrooms and sweeping the walkways and preparing the meals and so forth. So they were doing really all of the labor required for daily activities and the daily life of the dozens of people who lived in the academical village. Um, the university documents tell us an enormous amount about the enslaved people at the university but only really in moments of contest, right? So the official archives tend to document complaints or places where people have misbehaved. And actually, they're really extensive about the misbehavior of students at the University of Virginia. Um, those were voluminous. They occasionally intersect with the enslaved people at the university. And there's certainly documents of extraordinary violence of students enacted on the bodies of the enslaved people who lived here. Um, 
in the diaries, we get different sorts of interactions. We hear about the ways that the enslaved people in the community learned how to uh, sort of market to the University of Virginia students. And they were frequently selling them things that they might wish to have that were not otherwise easily available. And so they would come around with baskets of food. Um, they would help them procure alcohol. They would help them get access to the gambling, cockfighting, and card playing activities that they were interested in. So you get a very different and richer picture of the interaction of enslaved people in Charlottesville um, with the students when you add those other kinds of documentary streams. Of course, what is missing is the voice and the perspectives of those who were enslaved. Um, we certainly hope one day that we will find sources such as those, and certainly if you know of any, please, please, please come tell us afterwards. Um, but there's much more for us to do. All of us can know a lot about the history of enslavement at the University of Virginia if we just open our eyes and we know how to read buildings and landscapes. As we walk around the University of Virginia today, we often enjoy, especially in the springtime, the lovely gardens that exist behind the hotels and pavilions. But they weren't lovely ornamental gardens in the days of the first decades of the University of Virginia. They were workyards. They were the spaces where enslavement um, was intended to be contained by Thomas Jefferson. His design for the University of Virginia is one that is informed by his own design for Monticello, what he had learned in his nearly 80 years of living around slavery in Virginia, as well as what he had learned from urban settings. And so the gardens with their walls very carefully contained the labor that was necessary for running the University of Virginia. And in those spaces, meals were cooked um, clothes were washed, wood was chopped, and the list goes on and on. It was probably a landscape filled with chickens and cows and pigs in the early years until the university begins to banish those to the areas outside the academical village. There were probably some kitchen um, crops grown there as well. It was a place of labor and work. You can look into the basement spaces of pavilions and the hotels and see the places where labor was conducted, where enslaved people lived, same with the attics as well. And so if you begin to open your eyes as you walk around the University of Virginia and begin to look for those spaces, you can see much of the history of enslavement written there. Thank you, Maury. Appreciate that. Well, thank you. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, Okay, so this next question is for uh, Kelly. As you continue research over the next two to three years, where else will you turn for information? I am a historian and archaeologist. I study African American history. It's a very complicated thing to do, and I'm here tonight to talk to you about my interdisciplinary research methods that I use to kind of pull out or tease out these narratives that are buried deep in the ground, deep in the archives, and sometimes in plain view, but unless you know what you're looking for, as Maury talked about, you don't actually see it. So I started working for the PCSU on August 25th and spent the first few months really trying to figure out what we know, how we know it, and who knows what. And I have to say that was the most complicated thing I have ever done in my life. I felt like an octopus with nets. I was trying to talk to people, figure out who knows what. 
There's been so much work done by local historians, by the community, by the university, by professors, that for me, just trying to figure out, just give me a, a list, right, of folks who know something so I can go talk to them. So my first few months were really spent doing that. Um, I'm now comfortable with knowing somewhat of what we know or who knows what. I'm still contacting folks as I meet them daily. Uh, but right now what I'm doing is I'm moving into what we don't know, right? So I want to figure out the gaps in the research and d delve into the unwritten records and everything that's sitting there waiting for me to figure out. <laughs> African American history is incredibly challenging and it's, it's challenging for many reasons. Um, it's a painful thing to deal with. It's very hard during any period delving in, hearing the things, reading the things that were written about African-American folks. Some of the more sort of uh, complicated struggles that I deal with in looking at these archives, which are very hard to read if you don't know what you're looking for, uh, the first thing that comes up and one of the biggest challenges is subjectivity, right? People tend to think that somehow if it was written in 1840, it's the truth, right? Knowing mm -hmm. that people were, you know, had bad moral flaws, throughout history, right? And they write them down, it doesn't make them more true or less true than anything else. And human errors are trans-historical, right? So someone could literally be writing down the wrong stuff. I mean, how many of you are writing down, I know it's a different era, but writing down the truth and everything that you write, right? So knowing that the original documents have some issues, knowing that I have issues with my own biases, and just working with the subjectivity of all of this, right? It's an incredibly cumbersome thing to do. The second thing is availability. Records were traditionally kept by wealthy, rich, right, white men who were literate. And so when you're trying to figure out what was happening to the average enslaved person in Virginia, much less at the University of Virginia, which happens to have some pretty fantastic records, it's very hard to understand their voice, to find their voice in this. When you're trying to figure out what the average enslaved person at the university, what their daily life was like, and all you have are letters from the professors or complaints from the students, right? You don't have the whole story. And so I have to reach towards other things to help fill in those gaps. And enslaved folks, of course, they were not allowed to read or write. Some did. Um, I found some fantastic letters written by enslaved folks over the years, and that's something that's so rare and so valuable that when you find it, you know, you treat it as if it's a diamond that you just found on the lawn. You know, it's a wonderful thing. The third thing, the third challenge, is the relevance, right? You hope, I, I have all these dreams, right? You saw in the film, I want to find out all this information. It might not be there, right? And it's one of those things where, you know, I'm enthusiastic and I'm ready, but I, my heart might be broken in about two years, right? I'm going to go in there and th there might not be, right, the narratives that I want there to be. And so, you know, as much as I want uh, Professor Key or Professor Emmett to have written me a personal note back in, you know, the 1820s, it's not there. So I have to figure out what's there, figure out what's available. So much of this stuff burned, so much of it is still in someone's closet at their house, and if it is, you contact me so I can look at this stuff, <laughs> right? So that's a big part of it as well. The fourth significant issue is the politics, right? We're talking about 19th century Virginia. Discourse around morality of slavery, the shame of it is being built into the environment, Right? And so, you know, when, you, when you're relying on these white folks to sit there and tell you 200 years later about what was going on on their plantation or their university, you know, they might not be too willing to write to their buddy about what was actually happening. 
right? So you would hope that it's there, but again, sometimes that wall, you hit it face first. The last is representation, right? Representation. And this is what, what I mean by this is, like Maury had mentioned, right? That we have all, you know, books written and, and all these wonderful accounts of, you know, these riots and all the rebels and all these things, right? So the extraordinary moments are often kept and preserved. You don't write down what you were doing on a random Friday afternoon, but that's actually what I want to know. And so for me, it's, it's teasing out those extraordinary moments, right? And I really want to get to what it was like to be, to be an enslaved person at the University of Virginia. What was it like to get up in the morning? What did you have to do? And I'm going to tell you how I am, and I'm planning on teasing this information out. So I tackle these really hard questions by using interdisciplinary research methods. My training is in African-American studies, which is inherently, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, because you can't just sit there and be like, oh, I'm going to read Jefferson paper and I'm going to know what happened at Monticello, right? You've got to be able to really think broadly, work with the community, talk to folks, and really think more broadly about what you're actually thinking about, what you're writing about, and what you're researching about. So the first thing I do, of course, historical research. These are the archives. This is the written record. Um, really important to this is the oral history aspect, right? Traditionally in African American community, all the way back to West Africa, you have griots, you have people passing down that knowledge, and you're going to hang on to that knowledge because that knowledge, a lot of times, especially when you're talking about slavery, it's shameful and it's painful and you don't want to go writing it down and telling people about it. So a lot of this stuff is kept in the, the hearts and minds of folks. It's talked about in churches and in private spaces. And that's the part that's incredibly hard to tap into if you don't have a respect base, right, and a, and a space that you can actually come and talk about those kinds of things. The second thing, I'm an archaeologist, so I look at material culture and landscape. Maury mentioned landscape. It's an incredibly rich text if you think about it like that. Also, archaeology is really important, and I'll get into it in a minute, but because enslaved folks weren't writing and, and, and reading and telling us what their lives were like, we look at their garbage, right? We look at what they left behind. The last thing I use and I feel very strongly about is African diaspora theory. Veve Clark, the late Veve Clark, my mentor at UC Berkeley, she did all sorts of stuff. She thought about the Atlantic world, the diaspora as a broader space. Right? So really understanding the connections between the material culture that you might find in Brazil, that you might actually end up finding. There's, I'll tell you in a second, there's some cool stuff that was found by Ben Ford, but there are things in the landscape here at the University of Virginia right, that will completely parallel with other African-descendant communities throughout the diaspora. So thinking of this locally but globally as well is incredibly important. Yes, all right. So I want to take one really quick second to talk about the written record. Of course, there's the obvious things. You're going through these probates, these, you know, these lists of things. If you see the name slave or Negro, right, you know that they're talking about some black folks. What's really important is to look at this a little bit more critically. The more sort of covert aspects of this, one of them is, is even looking at probate inventories, right? So I'm writing a book on enslaved cooks and kitchens, thinking about the material that they lived with every day is a, a window, right? It might be a list of just stuff, right, that might have been in a slave quarter. But that's a window into what their material world was like, that their identity is tied up into that, their status. There are all these markers, right, that are not necessarily written down directly related to the enslaved people, right, but they are built into these probate records that give you a rich understanding of the daily textures of everyday life. 
This is where it gets really, really good as far as I'm concerned. It's the hidden narratives that you find in archaeology. If you think about it, right, you all have garbage at your house, right? And there's a public narrative that you have. It's your name, it's your age, those kinds of things, right? If someone really wants to know what you're up to, they're going to go through your garbage. They just are. And so when you do this, you understand what they were throwing away, what they felt valuable, the root cellars that are found. It's an incredibly powerful tool to understand what was actually happening, right? There might be a sign in here that says no food or, or eating in the building, and the garbage is filled with cheeseburger wrappers, right? So you figure out a way to be like, look, there's a law here in place, but the archaeology says that they were doing something a little bit more, you know, a little bit more risky. And that's an important narrative to uncover as well. And this sort of way of looking at things, this is something that I'm going to be doing with a lot of the material here, not just the recipes, but this is a really good example. If you think of something like a recipe, right, and you look at this saying, okay, they ate oyster stew, so what, right? But then, as a former chef, I'm sitting here looking, 100 oysters? How long is that going to take me to cook? I'm going to be sitting there with my hands bleeding for two hours trying to get those shells open. So when you look at it in terms of labor, you see a completely different profile than you do if you're like, oh, they were you know, eating French-inspired food. Right, but how long did it take to make that? So when you start looking at these typical right, written records and thinking of, of dynamic ways that look, you know, looking at the material, you're going to end up really understanding the daily life of a lot of these folks that lived here at the university. And lastly, Landscapes, you spoke beautifully on that, so I'm going to cut it off here. But landscapes are an incredibly rich text, and it's something that you cannot ignore when you're looking at the University of Virginia and the enslaved community. That's it. Okay, Kelly, thank you very much. Inspiring answer. Uh, Panelists to come back together again, Sorry. and uh, <laughs> got one question here for Katrina. Um, how will the special collections, the library, help the research efforts, and how will the topic of slavery be integrated into the curriculum at the university? Okay, so I'm not going to duplicate what we've heard before because <laughs> you all have done a really great job. But I wanted to, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library, it is adjacent to Alderman Library, which is on central grounds. Um, in our sight line right now and for the next, is it one or two years, is the Berlin Wall. Um, so <laughs> we're, right, we're right there. And anyway, and we're underground, so I don't know, we're kind of like hidden in... Um, in plain sight, so to speak. <laughs> sort of like these records, right? Um, so we are one of 12 libraries in the University of Virginia library system. And that's not including our labs that we have, our digital labs. And I want to emphasize that um, although we have non-circulating collections because we have the rare and unique um, collections of the library, be they book or manuscript or map, or, you know, et cetera. These are things that, you know, they're maybe one of a kind, so they can't circulate. But although they can't circulate, they are accessible to the public. So if you have a photo ID and you want to come to our library, you can indeed see any of these materials. Well, with a few exceptions. 
<laughs> namely Jefferson, but anyway. <laughs> um, and when you are not uh, at the library, you can access them, at least the records, look for things via Virgo, which is UVA's online library, online library catalog. So in the comfort of your own home, if you wanted to do searches for slavery or at the university, you know, these keyword searches, you can do that as well. So um, specifically, Special Collections is the home of the university archives, and it houses the materials that Maury and Kelly were talking about, and that includes the records, of the administrative records, the financial records, um, the architectural records of the university, alumni and student records, all kinds of records, university publications, um, and together with papers um, of alumni and students and Virginia First Families. I'm not from Virginia, so that whole concept has taken some, you know, getting used to. Um, <laughs> and other Virginia entities, um, be they people who played a role in it or institutions, those are all, those all play together to tell you a little bit about slavery at the university. Um, we have lots of classes that come um, to special collections. And Maury talked about her class, and there are other classes too. There's, in fact, a class that's scheduled for five times um, this semester to come to the um, special collections to learn about early, the history of early UVA. And Kurt Von Dach, who can't be here today, he teaches that class. Um, so students, really, undergraduates, get to really get their feet wet in this and confront things that they probably haven't at the age of, you know, 18 through 22. So they get the opportunity to do that when they come to special collections. Um, there's also a subcommittee of the uh, President's Commission that is dedicated to creating a very large-scale class um, that will create a space so every, um, every class period, a professor um, who has an expertise in a particular area about slavery at the university will give a lecture. And one of the assignments that the students will have will be to do a type of primary source um, assignment. So these classes can be pretty large. My colleagues and I are trying to figure out how we're gonna accommodate all of them, but we will, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, because we, Special Collections is really, although we are committed to making the record permanent for, you know, we want generations and generations of researchers to see our materials. We are very committed to making it accessible. We don't want the reputation that some Special Collections or rare book librarians, libraries have that, you know, you can't enter, it's untouchable, you need a letter to come in, None of that. We don't have that. We want you to see the records. Um, also, Maury talked about her project, Jewel. We'll be really excited when that happens. That's going to take years. But when all those records are online, that, that, yeah, that'll really help us out a great deal. We look forward to that. We also um, use our exhibition spaces to talk about this topic. And we've only had really a small, um, a small exhibition on um, slavery at the university. And my colleague, Irvin Jordan, 
helped to co-curate uh, that with me, and it was called Working Without Wages. It was uh, in two small cases, but we're in talks to have a very large-scale exhibition on this topic. And I was talking to a colleague today, and she was saying that, I wonder if this really could have happened in the 90s, the 1990s at the university, to have a, you know, a large-scale exhibition. And I just... I wasn't there, but <laughs> from what I have gathered and talked to people, I don't think that this could have happened. So I think we're ready now. We're more than ready now to do that. And I just want to end with, we're just very deeply invested in researchers, scholars, students, um, and the public having access to and creating new scholarship related to slavery at the university. And we're really open to any partnerships that can make that happen. Thank you. So we're going to open it up to the floor. And, you know, as we try to receive feedback from uh, the community, uh, we have held uh, several meetings with the community. We have a, a subgroup of the President's Commission of Slavery in the university that's called Collaborating with External Partners, um, meaning Monticello, Montpelier, Morvin, and, and the immediate community. So we're looking for feedback. You know, and certainly, as I said earlier, 250 years of slavery and 100, only 150 years since emancipation in the 200-year history of the University of Virginia and all the things that, uh, that need to be repaired, I mean, from uh, education uh, to health disparities to housing, unemployment issues, and so forth and so on. So we're not going to solve these in the three years or so, but it's our goal to have some initiatives in place uh, in line with the Bicentennial, uh, which starts in 2017. So any comments you have you want to provide us in terms of our work or any specific questions you have, this is your time to go ahead and, and ask or make the comments. The first questioner asked if the UVA researchers knew where slaves lived. We certainly don't know for every individual and probably never will for certain. Um, but we do know that many were housed in the university's buildings that currently exist, and there are dozens of university buildings that no longer exist. There are lots of references in the archives to faculty and hotel keepers requesting that additional buildings be built in these spaces that we refer to as gardens. Um, and there is even a great 1850s engraving that shows the university from the west side, and you can see these buildings sort of dotting that landscape. And they served a variety of different functions. Most common was a building that was often referred to as a, a cook and wash kitchen, and it usually had quarters upstairs. Some buildings may have been built just as quarters. Typically, woodsheds were built. Jefferson himself acknowledged that every professor would need a smokehouse. Um, and of course, if you're going to have a smokehouse, that means you have pigs there that you then slaughter on site in order to smoke. Um, there were garden sheds, I mean, the list goes on and on of the kinds of buildings that were necessary to support um, life. Students, uh, students, enslaved people also lived in the basements of hotels and pavilions, in the garrets. Um, we have records of faculty members requesting that an opening be put in the ceiling with access to the attic where there 
originally was not access um, so that enslaved people can sleep up there and in some of the rooms under the lawn rooms. We both have documentary evidence of that as well as inside those rooms and we've just started looking at those. I mean, just this last year we've begun documenting those spaces and there's evidence of whitewash and in some of them even plaster um, as those rooms were prepared for inhabitation. The second question asked if there were plans to list the names of all the unpaid workers who built the University of Virginia, or a trail that people could take to see the history. I'll take the first stab at this and you all can follow up. So we have one of our uh, groups is looking at um, memorialization, and uh, not only with just a plaque or some plaques on this building or that building, but basically a trail around the university and, and if it extends into the community, that as well, and, and certainly to the cemetery, where we already have names of slaves um, on, a, on a plaque there. But when I say a trail, uh, it could start with um, information in a rotunda visitor center. could be interpretive space. You know, we know there are a few buildings. Uh, one is called the Cracker Box. One is called the Muse. One is McGuffey Cottage. There are some um, rooms underneath, a couple of student rooms on the grounds, like uh, rooms 24, 26, in the back part below, uh, where we know slaves inhabited. So a lot of different places where information can be placed uh, regarding enslaved workers and free African-American contribution and, you know, contributions of workers in the early, early period. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, I mentioned in the video, uh, why not put the name of slaves on buildings? So we have that opportunity with the history of those who contributed and how they contributed perhaps in the lobby of certain buildings. Uh, and, you know, this bottom line is we need more than just one plaque. That, that one plaque that's gray slate, which is, what, maybe three feet long by about two feet wide, is certainly not enough. And I'm very proud of the students, the Memorial for Enslaved Labor Students Group, who just pointed this out and said, this, this is not sufficient. So, others? I think it's a great idea. Part of the work we need to do um, and part of the reason we're so thrilled to have Kelly, who can really focus on this for the next three years, is we still have to compile that list, right? So we have a long list of names, but it's by no means close to comprehensive. So we still have work to do to get to that list. And just to add on to that, too, add on to both of those comments, is, you know, I don't think that the university wants to necessarily memorialize slavery. We want to memorialize enslaved people and what they've done. And I think instead of having some large, I mean, the Brown Memorial is fine, it's large, it's a big ball and chain, you miss the actual people. And I think that once the research starts to conclude, we'll be able to inform the memorialization and we'll be able to talk more specifically about the different kinds of memorials that we'll do. And it's not just going to be one thing, but we're going to recommend multiple things to come up and be sort of woven into the fabric of the grounds. Yeah, institutionalize those things, education of our students and community members and visitors uh, it should be a part of the fabric of the institution. Other questions? Right here. The next question asked for a comment about the attitude towards slavery by UVA and Charlottesville officials after the Civil War. This is a, a moment where we definitely miss having Kurt Van Dack with us up on the stage, who's recently published a book on the free African-American community in the 19th century in Charlottesville, and so his knowledge would be much deeper. Um, I can speak to a little bit of the attitude of the faculty at the University of Virginia. 
who gathered at the end of the Civil War in order to determine whether or not they needed to do anything for the enslaved people who had been working at the University of Virginia, and they decided to do nothing. There are some historians in the audience here and, and individuals who, from the community who may want to make comments, and uh, you're free to make those comments to um, supplement some of the things that we perhaps don't know. The next question was about whether there was access to oral histories from the period and what the plan is to gather more. Absolutely, there's a plan. Um, I don't, that's something I think needs to happen organically. I really, I, you know, I'm not the kind of person that's going to show up and say, hey, you got to tell me what you know, right? That's just, it's, that's beyond offensive as far as I'm concerned. I did meet with the uh, woman, Aurelia, excuse me, Aurelia Crawford today, the Get Word Project up at Monticello, and she's got some contacts. I am a guest, I guess, author, columnist at the Vinegar Hill newsletter. I'll be writing things for them pretty regularly. And ideally what I want to do is have sort of an open forum where I come here, if, if it's okay, or somewhere that's off campus, off grounds. You can tell I didn't go to UVA. I call it campus. <laughs> <laughs> where we go off grounds, right? into the community, and I just want to tell people what I found. It might be nothing, right? But I, I you know, and I'm, I'm here, I want the community to think of me as working for them, right? I'm going to go like a detective and go find these stories, and I'm willing to share them with anyone who will listen, right? And I'm also, I would like to hear stories as well, and I'll, you know, if people want to come to the archive with me, that's completely fine. If it takes two years to develop trust, I'm fine with that. You know, I know from previous research I've done and, and work that I've done in African-American communities and doing oral history projects, you can't just show up and tell people that you're it and you've got to come talk. And so this is, you know, part of me being here and doing these kinds of forums is just to introduce myself to folks. You know, I'm from the West Coast. I went to William & Mary. I don't have deep Charlottesville ties. I did live here for a while, different story. But I want it to be something that is, is built in trust and time and that's something that doesn't please a lot of folks that want it now. But, you know, it's been a long time coming, and I'm here, and it's going to take a little while, and that's just the way it's going to have to be. And I don't have a set in stone, by this date I'm going to have 40 interviews. I'm just sitting here, I'm hoping that people will come talk to me, and it's just, that's just the way that I do things. To add to what um, Kelly said, once we have oral histories, it's our desire to house them and make them available in the university archives, in special collections. One complaint that I've heard, um, I'm not from Charlottesville, from, but one complaint I've heard from people from the African-American community is year after year you have classes come and interview them about various things related to race relations. There's a bit of a fatigue happening, and it's like, um, what are you doing with this information? You know. What was the point of doing if um, if some work is not created from it? So the desire is to get it in a place where many scholars can research it and have access to it so it can turn into a work of scholarship. It can be added to someone else's research so they won't have this continuous feeling of, oh, you're you're coming to get, take something from me again, and what am I getting back from it? The next question was about whether slavery could be talked about at the University of Virginia after emancipation. Well, I was talking to a colleague today and, you know, about how because of 
things that have happened in history and because of social media, it's like you can't hide as much. And you'll get called out on things if, um, I don't know if that's a good way to put it, um, if you try to hide. Like uh, we were discussing the whole, I don't know if you remember years ago, the whole, um, I can't remember what, what museum, um, but there was supposed to be an um, exhibition on the Enola Gay and the impact of um, dropping the bomb and everything. And the curator at the time wanted to have a very round, a very, you know, like a whole perspective on it. What do the Japanese feel about this? What did, you know, it was, it didn't just give the same old narrative like you would, you know, there in, at UVA, there is a narrative about Jefferson and the building of the university. So that's, you know, that you hear all the time that's not challenged by other perspectives. Well, anyway, it was so, the curator was so embattled by that. And it was, veterans really, you know, they were enraged by this, you know, that you would even challenge that narrative. That the only thing that ended up being um, exhibited was the fuselage of the, of the plane. So I think that kind of, um, I think people just at that time weren't ready. In fact, I've heard um, former President Castine say that uh, the University of Virginia kicked and screamed itself into the um, 20th century. You know, so I think that kind of, that still was very much alive at the time. And, you know, there, I think, maybe some remnants of that now, if you look at the various crises we've been going through or whatever, but I think that maybe people are brave enough and courageous enough now. Not saying that other people weren't, but, you know, people are ready for something like this to happen. And for the people who aren't ready, there's an, enough people who are, who will have to either bring them along or leave them, you know, standing. Just another just couple of perspectives on that. I was a student at the University of Virginia, an undergraduate student in the 1980s, and a member of the University Guide Service, which is a student volunteer organization that is the primary group that gives tours to visitors on grounds, both historical and admissions tours. And we never discussed slavery. And it wasn't that we were trying to hide anything. We just actually didn't even think about it. And that is, for me, who's now a historian of this, completely embarrassing, right? But most of us had grown up in the 1970s when this was still a topic not fully discussed. Most strong scholarship on American slavery really begins with the civil rights movement, becomes very strong in the 1970s, but doesn't really become increasingly mainstream until more recently. It has really been in the discussions of the last 20 years that we've made progress in African American history being American history, not being in something that is treated separately. Um, I will remind you that in the 1990s, most people were still not acknowledging Thomas Jefferson's relationship to Sally Hemings. And there was a real tendency in many quarters, but by no means all, to mythologize Jefferson. Um, and the conversations that have happened in the last 15 or 20 years have allowed us to look at Jefferson, or forced some people to look at Jefferson and acknowledge that Jefferson the man embodies the paradox of American history. How can the man who 
says with his words that he, that all men are created equal. Be a man who does nothing to end slavery. And Jefferson embodies that paradox and the establishment of the University of Virginia does as well. It was intended to ensure the success of the democratic experiment, but it was reliant upon slavery. And I've been at the University of Virginia for 19 years now, came in as chair of emergency medicine. So I've seen the institution and the community from the perspective of a physician, an administrator, a father of three kids who graduate from the University of Virginia, advisor, et cetera, et cetera. We recently, um, it's, it's complex, and I don't want to talk too long about this because we could go on with me talking about diversity data. The Office for Diversity and Equity, uh, a main job is to uh, improve the environment at the university, relationships between the university and community. Thus, we have you know, over 25 programs. Some of these programs, um, our keynote speaker was ta Coates. Um, who's a journalist for The Atlantic, and he wrote an article on reparations. So quite a bit of his talk was about reparations, legacy justice, civil rights in the modern era. Um, that probably wouldn't have happened a few years back. And then you look at some of the other topics, too. Tomorrow, uh, we have uh, Speaker Evan Hopkins, The Liberation of UVA, Using Your History to Inspire Your Future. So you know, a lot of different talks to bring the community and the university together. Uh, for our students to hear this, for our faculty to hear this, the staff to hear this. We have a, lot of way, we have a long ways to go in terms of relationships, but we've come a long ways. Um, the 90s, the percentage of African-American students was greater at the university, but now the total student body is greater. Uh, the percentage of minorities all told has increased at the University of Virginia for staff, faculty, and students. We've seen uh, rapid growth in multiracial students. Um, so if you go to diversity data, you can Google it at UVA, you'll see a new dashboard that we put together several months ago. I think it's www.virginia.edu forward slash diversity data. But just Google diversity data and you'll see some of that. But part of what the Commission on Slavery and University hopefully will do is to bring more insight to relationships. Again, I mean, this has been a long history of um, the need for repair in terms of relationships between the university and the community and the things we're trying to do. So we know we're not going to solve all those problems, but we're going, to, we're, going to make it, we're going to come closer to making this a better institution and a better community. I want to thank the panel one more time. And thank everyone for coming out tonight. There are a few more programs if you go to www.virginia edu forward slash MLK, you'll see the remaining programs. Thank you all. Have a wonderful evening. You've been a beautiful audience. Thank you.